0: Tonight, we're in Numbers chapter 5. And as we come to Numbers chapter 5, we've just completed the census that was done for the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph's tribe being subdivided between Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons. And each tribe, three tribes apiece, faced the four different directions of a compass, north, south, east, and west. And then last week, the two chapters with the census of the Levites, and everyone over one month old counted, but the sweet spot for serving was 30 to 50 years of age. We talked about that in detail, not only last Tuesday, but also the topical on Saturday. So we're coming forward from God has done the census. He's placed people where they're at. They're out Mount Sinai. They're going to be on the move pretty soon for their 40-year wandering or 39-year wandering in the wilderness before they get to the promised land with Joshua bringing them in. But as this historical book unfolds on its timeline... We still get some bonus instructions that almost seem like it would have been a good fit in Leviticus back in August and whatnot, but they're here in Numbers, and there's some reminders and, again, little details of insights for God's law in human behavior, civil behavior, and even his heart for truth and what's right and what's wrong. So we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse touching a dead body. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp. As the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Going back to the leprosy, we spent a whole night on leprosy back in Leviticus, Leprosy, of course, has a physical uncleanness, but it is symbolic of spiritual uncleanness. And even in the New Testament, we find, like in 1 Corinthians 5, when people are confessing Christ and living in open, rebellious, unrepentant sin, that's a reproach to society, that church leadership has a responsibility to disfellowship them, to set it straight for them that they're not right with God. Now, in America, that doesn't happen much. So people keep going to church. They keep going to church, living in sin. Their conscience becomes seared, and they're churchgoers, and they can't discern their right hand from their left. And it's very unfortunate. This does happen in America a lot. In places like Pakistan, it doesn't really happen because either you're all in with Jesus, and they throw acid on your face and take your house from you, or you're not in with Jesus, and you're not going to take that risk and that identification. But here in America, you can have a soft-sell gospel where the gospel is really about you feeling good for yourself, which a lot of people believe. And so they'll say, God wants me happy, while they live in open sin and obvious sin and rebellion to God, or they conjecture a new Jesus of their own sinful behavior that becomes a Jesus of their mind and the Jesus of their church, not according to Jesus, who is I am that I am, because he calls himself the I am in the gospel of John, the self-sufficient one who's holy and righteous and true and all those things, but a different Jesus. And that's why we're in so much trouble in our country right now, is that the vast majority of churches don't really believe the gospel, and they don't really believe the word of God, and they don't really believe in sin. They don't really believe in the blood. They don't really believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They rarely even believe in the power of prayer because we don't believe in those things. Why would you believe in prayer? And they don't really believe that we're we're condemned humanity under sin and we're in desperate need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. But here we do believe that. Amen? Amen? Yeah. So, you know, in my 33 years of ministry, I've actually had to put people outside the camp like 1 Corinthians 5. Very difficult. I had to put my sister outside the camp over 30 years ago, much to the attack from my mom. But look where my sister's at with the Lord now. She's on fire for the Lord, doing really well. And she respects what I did, the stand I took 32 years ago at Christmas, not to live with someone, not to break bread with someone in open sin. My sister was living in open sin with her boyfriend, going to women's ministries at Calvary Chapels, and we were flying out from Virginia to have Christmas with my family, and I told my mom, God fully convicted me from 1 Corinthians 5 not to break bread with such a person. Now, that will affect your family dinner at the holidays, just so you know. And, you know, it would have been really easy to just go like, ah, it's no big deal. But the Lord's like, no, you need to hold your sister accountable. And it's not about being popular or being easy. It's about being obedient and faithful. And that was a very difficult thing to do. But now, 33 years later, or actually 30 years later, my sister's on fire for the Lord and doing really well with the Lord, and she had to go all the way to being homeless for six years on the streets to come to her brokenness, but she trusts me because she knows I've never capitulated or surrendered the truth in her life, and it even goes back to that time. So putting outside the camp for the Israelites was a necessary thing for hygienic purposes, but it also was a necessary thing that had symbolic spiritual purposes, because again, that's exactly what the New Testament tells us to do. And what do we read about Jesus in Hebrews? He was crucified where? Outside the camp, outside the city, because he took our sins upon himself. So it'd be easy to just skip over these first few verses, but they are important contextually, and they are expounded on in the New Testament with a deeper meaning and understanding. Don't ever be afraid to stand for the truth and say things that people don't want to hear because you're being truthful. Because the Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And I have people that still hate me to this day because I've said things that were true that they didn't want to hear. But like Paul said to the Ephesians, i not ceased to declare to you the whole counsel of God, and I'm innocent of the blood of all men. So as we've gathered here, I would hope and pray when I stand before the Lord, I'll be able to say on the day of Christ Jesus, I'm innocent of the blood of all men and women, and hopefully you too. I'm not trying to embarrass people. I'm not trying to ostracize people. But sin is deceitful. And if people live in sin long enough, it'll completely deceive them into thinking they're fine with the Lord when they're not. And Jesus was put on the cross because he spoke the things that are true, and the religious leaders didn't want to hear it. And who knows what our future holds for us as a church in America, on planet Earth, going into the next decade of the 20s, 2020s. Either way, who knows what it holds for you. Let us be found faithful to say things that need to be said, because they're true, not because they're popular, and to take stands that need to be taken, not because they're easy, but because they're necessary, because God is light, and him is no darkness at all. And this outside the camp has that connotation to it. Now we read on in verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin which he's committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. But if a man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement with which atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. whatever every man gives the priest shall be his. So in this case, making restitution, if you can make restitution with the individual that you've Sinned against, you do that. But if it's not possible, you'd still make a restitution. And I like this because it creates an accountability. Sin always costs us something, but so often we don't think it does, right? Because the Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. But in the end, you're always going to pay the toll for sin. Because sin is conceived, and then it brings forth death when it's birthed. And God's not mocked. If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. But if we sow to the Spirit, we reap life. So sooner or later... There's always the toll to pay for sin. And so here, God's like, hey, if you do something in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and it says against the Lord, and like David said in Psalm 51, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. Now, he sinned against uh, Uriah, his one of his 30 mighty men. He sinned against Bathsheba when he slept with her, when she was married to another person. And, he, and his sin had far-reaching effects. The, the child that was conceived... The Lord took that child. And it was a very intense time. And as the leader of all Israel, that sin became known to everybody. And it had far-reaching ramifications. But David said, still, sin ultimately is against God. Our sins affect other people. And we might need to ask forgiveness for sins we've committed against them. Or make restitution if we can. Like if you stole something or ripped someone off in business. If you can make it right, please do. Right? But some things you... You maybe can't, but either way, it's the sin is always against the Lord. And that's why we're promised in 1 John chapter 1 that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness through our faith in Jesus Christ. Because if we sin, if we say we don't sin, we deceive ourselves, but if we acknowledge our sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is ever with the Father, pleading on our behalf. See, he's our great high priest that Hebrews tells us. So we, we don't wake up like, oh, I can't wait to sin. Certainly most of you, I would think, don't think that way when you start a new day. But things happen, and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? It, you know, it wasn't necessary. like why? And you think those things. And so, like, we take that to the Lord when we're sensitive to the Lord, praying at night or laying in bed, reflecting on the day or in the morning, a morning devotion, and we suddenly realize, like, man, I got I to gotta make that. I just need to call them and say, I'm sorry. The idea is restitution. Even Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, hey, if you're going to go to law and go to court suing somebody or something when you're on the way to the judge, just just make it right. Just pull them aside and go like, hey, let's let's get this right before we both get thrown in jail and we lose everything and the lawyers get it all. Let's make this right. The idea of restitution, we saw it in Leviticus, is very important. And we have restitution with the Father because Christ died in our place, our redemption. But as we go through our journey and we make mistakes and we the holy spirit convicts us of our sins and and these things that we want to be sensitive and there are times we can make that phone call to make it better there are times we can humble ourselves and just say yeah I, i'm really sorry about that and as i shared with my nephew josh uh, a few months ago i said josh you know if you say you're sorry nine out of ten times that's going to get you out of jail with people like really because think how many people never say they're sorry so if you can just humble yourself and say you're sorry, like people, are, like if you go around and you burn people and you take advantage of people and suddenly and everyone knows it and then you come back and say like, man, I'm really sorry. They're like, huh, really? Like usually that, that, that will be good. Nine out of 10 times, you saying you're sorry to someone that you did wrong will make things much better. And if you can actually make restitution, like I stole this from you or I took it advantage of you and like, hey, I just want you to receive this gift. Again, going back to my sister. When she was on drugs, she stole the silver bar from my dad's house that belonged to her son, Jimmy. It was a gift from my dad to Jimmy, his grandson. It was worth about a $1,000. And she stole it, sold it, did drugs with it, that money and everything. And as she was going through the crash program for rehab, that restitution is a big part, of course, in all those 12-step programs, and rightfully so. So she got that job at Macy's during the holiday season, three, four years ago when she was getting her life together, living in the halfway house. And as soon as she had $900, she gave it to Jimmy. And Jimmy wanted nothing to do with his mom. He didn't want to talk to her. He, didn't, he wouldn't let me take pictures with his mom. For the first year and a half, she was sober. He would not let me take a picture with his mom. He didn't want anything to do with it. But that, that $900 that she gave him, and believe me, she was making minimum wage when she was working at Macy's as a holiday temp, living in a halfway house. That's definitely minimum wage in case you don't know your your payroll cycle nine hundred dollars is a lot of money for someone working minimum wage, and she gave that money to Jimmy to make restitution and I can tell you this that was the beginning of the healing for her and her relationship with her son and to see photos from this last weekend where she 's with her son, his girlfriend and her son's daughter, so her granddaughter, at a pumpkin patch in San Diego on a day off from, you know, of course, Jimmy became a cop with San Diego this year. And to see them together, I mean, that that photo that she sent me just brings such joy on a Sunday morning. But the restitution so often sets it straight so that things can be fully restored. Because it's not about the 20%, which is what it was again, right? You catch that, it's one-fifth, it's 20%. It's not about the 20% interest on what you took. It's just that you actually have humbled yourself, said you're sorry, and tried to make it right. So this is a key application to remind all of us tonight. If the Lord points out something that's wrong through confession of sin and unfaithfulness to the Lord, and he shows you that you can do something to make it right, make it right. That's what we want to do. And if we can make, make it right with the Lord, if we can make it right with someone else, somehow, some way, just sometimes letters letter is worth more than $1,000 from a stolen silver bar, right? Don't underestimate what good things can happen when we say we're sorry to the Lord. And then when it costs us something, doesn't that generally set us in a direction that we don't want to undo that by doing the same thing again, right? Like, if it's like the, my famous story about my friend Ray, thirty years ago at Vista in the re, drug rehab ministry we had, we shared Christ with him, and he says, like, "I believe it all." And we're so, "Well, why don't you give your life to Christ right now?" And he says, "Because I have you know twenty-five thousand dollars worth of crystal meth in my closet." Well. I remember to say, you know, and I've told this story before, but like, hey, let's do this right now. Let's go pour it out, and then you'll be all in with Jesus because you'll never wake up tomorrow and turn your back on Jesus if you poured out $25,000 with the crystal meth the night before. And, you know, I should have been selling cars that day because he was all in. I sold him on it, and it was an easy sell because I had the power of the Holy Spirit confirming that truth. And we went to that place where he lived in Vista. We walked in a field, and we poured out $25,000 worth of crystal meth. And he said, he told me, what about the drug dealers? like, listen, man, Jesus Christ will protect you, like I taught a couple weeks ago. But you worry about the drug dealers. Do the right thing today, and he'll take care of you tomorrow when you have to face that. He poured it out. Those drug dealers can you what? And he's like, hey, I gave my life to Jesus. I poured it out, and they left him alone. Because even crystal meth drug dealers are like, that's bad juju. You know, it's probably bad juju to mess with the guy who's confessing Jesus once you know for sure he really is. And it's wonderful to see him and his wife years later just continue to serve the Lord in children's ministry. Restitution, if it costs you something, it generally has a productive value on your character for the rest of your life. Like Ray, like my mom, like my sister, and these sorts of things. And so, sometimes it's costly to pay to get out of jail, if you will. But if it If it sets your heart and your character in the right direction, good for you, good for us. Amen? Yeah. It can be humbling, though. You know, the hardest thing is just to say, you know, to just humble yourself and say, all right, my wife's right, my kids are right, or they're right, or, Lord, you're right. If you can get past that and really just say, okay, big piece of humble pie, it's going to get a lot better. Verse 11, and we're going to read this text for the rest of the chapter because it all goes together. It's the... uh, concerning unfaithful wives and the, the law of jealousy. It's an unusual, interesting text. There's no historical record of this ever happening, but it does have a couple of insights that are worth noting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her cardinally, so a sexual relationship, and it is, so she commits adultery, and is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witnesses against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour out no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it's a grain offering of jealousy an offering of remembrance for bringing iniquity remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in the earthen vessel, take some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. Wow, stop for a minute. <laughs> dust from the floor of the tabernacle. This is serious stuff. We talk about holy ground. That's holy ground. Verse 18. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under an oath and say to the woman, if no man has lain with you and you have not gone astray to uncleanness while your husband under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you've gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell.'" And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach, and may your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen. So be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. He shall scrape them off in the bitter water, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar, and the priest shall take a handful of the offering as a memorial portion, burn it, on the altar, and afterwards make the woman drink the water, then when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully towards her husband, that the water shall bring a curse, will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or whenever the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her guilt. Well, first of all, this is an unhappy passage, just because this would be an unhappy marriage either way, right? Like, did you catch that? Like, I mean... A marriage that has jealousy is a marriage that's definitely missing something in the power of the Holy Spirit in the first place. So for me, this is hard to relate to. My wife has never provoked me to jealousy, and I've definitely tried not to provoke her to jealousy. Jealousy can be something obviously very unhealthy. And if two people love each other, and if the husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church, and she's yielding to her husband as unto the Lord, there's just not going to be a spirit of jealousy in the marriage. So first of all, let's just say this. This is not a good marriage. This is not a healthy marriage. This is a marriage with distrust, probably resentfulness, probably bitterness, just a lot of lack of trust in this marriage. That's what we can see right here. And thus the spirit of jealousy is there. It just The Lord is not over this marriage because the Lord gives peace, and this type of jealousy would not be the result of the Lord being over it. So contextually, we recognize that right away. So now you have two adults who are married, and they don't trust each other. And by the way, the woman though she could be exposed and rot and have all this pain and be uh, a really bad example of not to be an adulterous woman, did you notice that the man would have to bear his iniquity too? Did you catch that in the last verse? If he has a spirit of jealousy and his wife's not been unfaithful to him, then it's on him. So even though he's the covering, so because of the position, now we know there's neither male nor female in Christ, and we're all one in Jesus. So there's no superiority of a male to a female in the kingdom of God. We make that very clear. But there is an order. And if the husband is like, hey, I'm the man of the house, you're under my authority, and you know I'm just going to do this. Again, we have no record of this ever happening in action in the Bible. Let's make that clear. This, there's no record of this. But we do have another story we're going to get to. But if he did this, man, if you're the husband, you don't want to do this. Like, dude, don't play that card. Are we really doing this? Are you really taking me down to the tabernacle right now? Are you really doing this? Because I have been faithful to you. And, you know, my dad made me marry you. And I've been faithful to you. And I've done my best. And you've abused me. And it's never enough with you. So are you, you see, it's one thing to do this to me privately, but you want to take me down to the priest and be shown that you really are a donkey? Do you really want the priest to know that you act like this toward me? And God's going to vindicate me before you and before him. And the iniquity is going to be on you. So think about it, husband. You see, she could actually say that. Because that last verse says, if she's guilty, then the man will be free from iniquity, which implies he's under iniquity if she's not guilty. So every time men have that, like, I'm the, just be really careful about being the king in your castle. All great kingdoms have great queens. For sure. Peter the Great, Catherine, his wife, incredible. She was a slave girl, Lithuanian slave girl. And she kept that great king that changed the world on track all those years. She's the only one that could get him to come to his senses when he was just absolutely upset with somebody. Now, for the woman that actually did commit adultery, we know there's a lot of proverbs. because like, man, it's so easy for people to be unfaithful. And the older you get, the more you understand why people are unfaithful. Because people end up in relationships that are very unhappy, they're abusive, and they're neglected, and you understand it. So let me just say that right now. I I would never condone it, but I understand it. Much more at 60, almost 60, I have to say that, because my wife keeps saying, don't say you're 60. I'm almost 60, right? Okay. Which is fine. I'm almost 60. But when you're 30, you got it all figured out, like, well, you know, you know, like, go home and figure it out. You know, it's like when you're 30 and you're new in ministry, and then, like, you get to 60. Like, you've seen a lot of things by the time you get to almost 60. It's like, you know what? Like, things, some things just go a certain way, and there's always more than you know, and you really don't want to know any more than you know, so just pray for everybody, and let God be true, and every man a liar, right, but in a society where women cast off their covering, and are unfaithful to their husband, it's just never going to be a good thing for her, it's just never going to be a good thing for her, it's not going to be a good thing for the man to be jealous, and overbearing on his wife and it's not or let alone the man being unfaithful to his wife as well that's going to be just as bad for him sin is sin but in this context in a society god wanted this society to honor marriage and he wanted women to be faithful to their husbands and what do we read in malachi why does god hate divorce because he desires godly offspring and so there is a chain reaction when things go wrong in the family unit that way and there's universal laws physically and there's universal law spiritually and it doesn't mean God can't redeem broken marriages and divorces and blended families and kids put together Brady Bunch type of stuff God can and he does and we've watched it and it's wonderful but man adultery it just we can be cleansed we can be forgiven and we go forward which brings us to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 right We never had this happen, but we did have Jesus come upon the adulterous woman that they brought to her. No one has seen the Father, but the Son. He has revealed the Father to humanity. And if this is a shadow of black and white where sin separates us from God and holy dirt from the tabernacle mixed with holy water holds someone accountable to reveal things that are hidden because some things are hidden. Don't forget, Jesus said, All things are naked and bare and open before him to whom we must give an account. There is nothing that is hidden that will not be revealed. That is very sobering for me, as I'm sure it is for you. But the woman caught in adultery, as Jesus stooped down on the sand and wrote certain things, we saw he said "Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And these men so determined to catch Jesus between the law of Moses and the grace, the fullness of grace that also Moses had, they all had to go away shamed because not one of them could say they were without sin, especially standing before Jesus Christ who would die for their sins. And that's really the heart of God for the woman caught in adultery. What do you say? Where are your accusers? They're not here. Nor do I condemn you, but go your way and sin no more. So we can never change what happened up until October 12, 2020, right? I mean, we just can't change anything. There's things that embarrass us. There's great mistakes, great blemishes in our life that precede us to October 13th, 2020. We cannot change any of it. But we can hear the words of Jesus Christ saying, nor do I condemn you, go your way and sin no more. It's kind of like the restitution. You make an investment toward what's right, you're more likely to stay on what's right. And if you really understand the richness of grace, like that woman caught in adultery, can you imagine that woman caught in adultery, how scared she was? These self-righteous, pious men, who Jesus exposed as adulterers in their hearts when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, dragging her and bringing her to Jesus. And maybe she wants to think, what about the guy? The guy seduced me, right? Like there's so much, we don't know the story. My husband beats me. We don't know the story. We have no idea proceeding that, only that she was caught. And these men wanted her publicly humiliated and publicly executed with Jesus' approval. And then just so stunning when Jesus is riding in the sand and the dirt. And as she walked and walk, walk away, she watched these men walk away. She's like, oh my goodness, like, what's going on? It's to get out of jail. Because they brought you to Jesus, the son of God, God who made you and sustained you, who alone has the authority to forgive sins. And he forgave her sins, but he said, go your way and sin no more. Not that she wouldn't have sin issues in her future, but basically saying like, hey, Stay away from those kind of men. Stay, You know, he did hold her accountable, so stay away from that kind of situation. Even excusable contextually, just go your way and think how scared you were for the last 10 minutes, 30 minutes when all this happened. And just go forward and live your life that's pleasing to God the way he'd want you to. Go your way and sin no more, the woman caught in adultery. Now we get to chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering, take a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself or herself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vows of separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair, of his head, grow all the days that he separates himself to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or sister, as if they, you know, if they passed away. When they died, because his separation to God is on his head, all the days of his separation... He shall be holy to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of its cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest toward the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering, and the other as a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned in regard to the corpse. He shall sanctify his head at the same day that day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering because the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. We'll get a little more on this in just a moment with the, the vow of the Nazarite. So the Nazarite vow. We do see this with Samson in the book of Judges. Samson had the Nazarite vow. that The angel of the Lord said to his parents, he's under the Nazarite vow, and of course, Interesting enough, to point out that Samson did all three of these things to defile himself: the grapes, the dead corpse, and the hair. So before the hair was the last of the three that went, where he lost his power, his supernatural power from the Lord. And literally, you know, God's not mocked. Like if you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit, you reap life. And God was so gracious with him, but in the end, he surrendered each one of these parts of the Nazarite belt to the Lord, and ultimately, he lost his power. He lost his eyesight, he was humiliated, but on his last day, of course, he avenged himself and killed more people on his last day in defense of his people against their enemies, the Philistines, than his whole life put together before that, which is, to some degree, certainly an act of grace by the Lord, and he did it in the gods of Dagon, the Philistine gods' temple, when he did bring it down. So this is the Nazarite vow, and we see it's something that's not forced on anybody. It's a choice. It's, it's I mean, Samson was called to the Nazarite vow, which would have been a great privilege. But apart from that, we don't know of anything like that where it would have been a choice. So we've talked about this going through Leviticus. If you just decide, like, the free will offering, like, I just want to do something extra for the Lord. I want to just really dial it in. So if people commit themselves to a season of fasting, for example, right now they're in Chino Hills, Pastor Jack Hibbs and their church. They're doing the Tuesday fasting for our nation with the upcoming election. And it's a big movement. They're they're building a movement of more and more people on Tuesdays fasting and crying out to the Lord for mercy on our country, mercy on this planet. Because as we go, the whole planet goes. If the Statue of Liberty goes down, the whole planet goes down. So it's not just us. It's not just California and all these things that we're watching going on around us or even just our country. It's the whole world. We need to understand that. We're not just under some government in Bangladesh or India or under South Africa or Mozambique or Tanzania or Colombia or Brazil or Argentina or Uruguay or America, Samoa or Japan or China. Like, I'm just giving countries all over the world. Various countries have various influence on the world, but no one influences the world like America. They don't use the Aussie dollar when you're buying stuff on the black market in Russia. They don't use the Chinese yuan; They use the American dollar. That's what they use. When you go to Costa Rica and you use currency, you're not using Japanese yen. You're using the American dollar. This country is the most unique country in history and this is the most critical time in our history, for those of us who live here, but are the effects of this upcoming election, the effects of this clash of social ideas and ideologies and who's funding them, it doesn't just affect us. It's going to affect the whole world. The whole world's watching us. That's why the whole world has an opinion on everything happening in our country right now and this election, as if they think it's their election. Because even though they're not American citizens, they're going to be very much affected by how this plays out. Are we going globalist, full socialism, um, which always leads to full Marxism, which leads to full communism, which of course is full atheism, which destroys societies every single time, or are we gonna follow the biblical model of the nation state where there's national identity with people and the beauty and distinction, the difference between Italians and the difference between Colombians and the citizens of America and the different societies of the world that God honors, it's like when you go to Disneyland and it's a small world, it is a small world, and we are different, and we have different cultures, and God's designed those cultures that way. And, of course, President Trump's speech to the UN two years ago on the value of distinct nations as opposed to total pluralism of globalism is incredible. You can find it, I think, still. It might be censored. I don't know. Last time I looked, it was still there. It was the most articulate description with a biblical worldview on that. Because, of course, the Tower of Babel is where God dispersed us with different languages. So we wouldn't unify because God knows when we're completely unified, we are rebels against God, and the ultimate rebellion is a new world order in total rebellion to God, devoid of God, persecuting anything other than their secular, humanist, atheist worldview. So you go back to China and the three patriarch Three Front Church 30 years ago, they had a state church that, capitulated the gospel and was under the Communist Party, the CCP, and they're allowed to exist. And they attacked all the underground churches. Anyone that wasn't controlled by those churches was controlled by the legacy of Chairman Mao Zedong and the Communist Party, which does not tolerate any god but them being god, because it's a godless worldview. That's why Ronald Reagan, that's why these previous wars of Vietnam and Korea were fought. They were fought against, not people, but ideologies of a godless worldview. The Cold War was a war against ideologies. We believe in God. They don't. Which ideology is going to win the marketplace of thought for people? So now, though, we don't have so much as the state church in China anymore. They've destroyed those churches because they don't need them anymore because they're hauling everyone off to these death camps by the millions of any religious view because they're all incompatible with the communist Marxist worldview. And this is what's at stake right now. And this is why we need a Nazarite vow in each of our hearts and each of our lives. We don't want to look back later on in our life and think that we were twiddling our thumbs in the month of October when the entire nation and the entire planet was weighed in the balances. And to quote James Dobson and Franklin Graham and, and Graham Watson, all these other amazing people, this is it. This is it. Now, I think, I think that without James Dobson saying this is it. or Jack Hibbs and all these other people. It's okay to be political when it's dealing with the destiny of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom of the gospel to preach this. Remember I told you Ivan Prokhanov, the Russian, who was persecuted under Nicholas II, the last czar of the Romanov Empire, and then by Lenin and Stalin and these guys under the rise of the Bolsheviks and then the Soviet Union... The one thing he constantly fought for was freedom of speech in the marketplace of thought, so the gospel would have that opportunity. He fought his entire life that the Russian people could have freedom of speech to present their thoughts on the gospel and let those thoughts compete against, in the marketplace, the thoughts of the atheistic, communist, Soviet worldview. And he ultimately was expelled and died in exile in Germany. Hitler did a very similar thing where he controlled the Lutheran Church, which essentially was a German state church, And he got them to capitulate the gospel, which most of them already had. But the true evangelical Lutherans, they separated from the Lutheran church about 34, 35, 36, when they saw what Hitler was doing to the Jews and all that stuff. And they stood for the Lord. And they watched the destruction of their nation and all of Europe. But by the time Hitler was invading Poland, he wasn't using the Lutheran church anymore. He didn't need them. He used them to sway the German people in his fascist worldview of intolerance for anything other than his worldview— he mocked Christianity, and he mocked the Christians. And he got a state church to be compliant to everything he did until he didn't need him anymore, and then he threw them under the bus at the same time he's hauling off Jews and everyone else that he didn't like off to death camps in other parts of Eastern Europe. So you see, if you don't confront these things, and if you don't deal with the things now, seriously, in the spiritual realm, this is where they go, what we're seeing from human history. You look at a guy like James Dobson. For 60 years, he gave everything to the family. focused on the family. I dedicated his grandson here on Christmas Eve 14 years ago. And you've watched all that we've watched. And he is crying out with everything he has left in his life before he steps into eternity because he's much older than I am. He's telling us, this is it. So the Nazarite vow is for seriousness with the Lord. It's about consecrating ourselves. It's about walking 400 miles to pray for your country in 2008 like I did. So ask ourselves tonight, what can you do? What can I do? What can we do to take the vow at such a critical juncture for the Lord for the sake of our lives, our freedoms that are definitely under attack from traitors within? They're so deep in our government. They're so deep. They don't need to drop parachutes with soldiers on our country. They've already infiltrated all over our country. And they're behind all this chaos, and they're traitors. And we have to fight this battle with spiritual weapons. And now is the time, body of Christ, Church in America, WG, right here. We have to be more serious and more sober than we've ever been in our prayer life. Because it's not about two political parties. It's about two worldview ideologies. And the one that represents Christ tolerates the ones that reject Christ. But the one that fully rejects Christ does not tolerate any place for Christ. In our universities, in our workplaces, and in these laws. And as bad as it is now, it's only going to get worse. So I'm not even telling you about voting. I'm telling you about praying and consecrating and being all in, not just for our lives, but for the lives of our children and children's children. Because if I get hauled off somewhere because of my faith and my conviction somewhere down the road, I want to have a smile on my face and I want to have any regrets on that day. And if my grandkids or great grandkids get hauled off somewhere, I watched my dad play with his great grandkids today. If I'm ever 90 and I'm playing with my great grandkids that are 87 years younger than me, and I just want to know that I did everything right for them as best I could. And if those great grandkids of my father are incarcerated or persecuted to the ends of the earth for their faith in Jesus, I want them to know that we did our part to intercede for them for their future. That we like Bonhoeffer. You know, I think if I was German, and I was a German pastor after World War II, and I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm looking at my country in total rubble, I would think of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who didn't make it. Of course, he was executed by the Nazis right before the war was done. He almost got to the end of the war. I would, just, I would want to do, I, I, would, I would feel good to know that someone like Bonhoeffer, who could have lived in America in the 30s and was in New York City in 38, but went back to be the Germans because he was a German, and he was going to minister to Germany when this nightmare was over, and he felt he couldn't minister if he wasn't part of it, so he had to be part of it, so he left the safety of New York City, and he went back to Germany, and he went through it, and he risked his life, actually part of the whole assassination attempt on Hitler. The Val, Valkyrie, the movie, he was part of that in real life. And it was was the best choice of many bad choices. And they hung him. And he taught a Bible study from the book of Isaiah before they took him out back and they hung him before all those Nazis were out of power in less than three weeks after they hung him. So if I'm a pastor coming on the heels of that, on a dark day in Frankfurt in the 50s, I'm going to think back to that man and what he did for me and for my future and know that he gave everything he had. To give for me, and that's what we want to do for our kids and our grandkids, and for your generation. The Nazarite vow is all about being set apart and all in completely for the Lord. It's about letting go of things that are that you choose to let go between you and the Lord for more power of the Lord in your life. It's about being a living sacrifice. Literally, when they cut your hair and they burn it on offering, that's a living sacrifice. It's about just being completely all in. When we make those sacrifices, our vision gets sharper. Now, I know most of you are very serious about this time, and you're praying and you're interceding. We're watching every day what's going on in the news around our country. Keep praying. Stay sharp. Don't lose heart. Those songs that Joe had us singing, weren't they great songs? They were just just declaring truth, and it gives us perspective. But don't be soft. This is no time to be soft. It's time to be a Nazarite. Verse 13. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, or hers we could say, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall present his offering to the Lord. One male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering. One ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering. One ram without blemish as a peace offering. A basket of unleavened bread. Cakes of fine flour mixed with oil unleavened wafers, anointed with oil, their grain offerings with their drink offerings. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer... His sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with a basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, and one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved his consecrated hair, and the priest shall weigh them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering, and the thigh of the heave offering, after that the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows to the Lord the offering of his separation, and besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. When we make vows with the Lord, even in the New Testament, New Covenant, when we make vows, it's we make vows, you know, uh, Jesus tells us, let our yes be yes and our no be no, and then James tells us the same thing in the book of James, let your yes be yes, your no be no, but, you know, we're going to make a vow, let's make a vow, you know, and and you make a vow, and you you see it through. When you commit to something with the Lord, like the Nazarite vow, or just whatever it is, like, hey, I'm going to fast from this for three weeks, like Daniel and meet whatever, or, you know, just whatever, like, when you make Decisions to consecrate yourself and go deeper, and ask for greater focus from the Lord, and to to press in deeper. God's going to honor that, and you're you're gonna you're gonna grow in that. We're gonna grow in that, and then what's going to happen is you're gonna complete that. You're gonna fulfill that vow, you know, twenty-one day vow for this or that. You're gonna fulfill that, and there's going to be a sense of accomplishment. Not like a work of the flesh, but just a sense of accomplishment, and you're going to grow. Because you you chose to make those things. We are headed for eternity, right? We are all headed for eternity. You can never go wrong with a consecration to be more like Jesus in time and getting ready for eternity. We can never go wrong. You can never be too much the heavenly man, the heavenly woman. And there's something beautiful about when you seal the fruit and complete a vow. Like if you say you're going to go on a ministry trip, a mission trip, and you go. I talked with a, a, a man the other night after Saturday service who Turned down the Lord the first time to go to Haiti with Brian McDaniel to do the ministry in Haiti with Cross the Light. But then the second time, he didn't turn it down, and he went. And to hear him talking about the story, how they went to the prison, how they went to these villages, how they did this and how they did that. You know, he fulfilled the vow. He went to Haiti, and he did do the ministry, and he had a story to tell Pastor Joey on a Saturday night after service. There's something special when you complete that vow, when you go for it. Think how excited I was when I came back from Russia in obedience to the Lord last year. I was so excited. There's something special. It's what we do to complete the separation. The Nazarite vow is a completion. So give yourself things that you can do that are consecrations that bring completion before the Lord. Hey, I'm going to read the New Testament in three months, right? Whatever it is, like, think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Ask the Lord to guide us. Guide you. Guide me. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking a lot about it. Finally, let's all stand for this last passage. Because it's Pastor Chuck's passage, right? Yeah, the Lord bless thee. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it because, uh, you know, that's, that's holy ground right there, Pastor Chuck, singing the Lord bless thee. But let me read this out loud to us. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 22, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Our God's a blessing God. He's for us. Again, those wonderful songs we're singing with Joe Henschel earlier, just proclaiming praises. He's got the final victory. And as he looks upon us tonight, and what I just shared about consecration, as I shared about other things, restitution, think about this. There's three things that he says in this passage, and he doubles them up. So the Lord, it starts with the Lord all three times. The Lord bless you. The Lord make you. The Lord lift him, lift his countenance. So 24, 25, 26, it all starts with the Lord. It always starts with the Lord, right? So the Lord, but then what's he going to do? He's doing it for us. He's going to bless you and keep you no matter what. And the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Favorable countenance. Don't you love favorable countenance as opposed to disfavorable countenance? We want the Lord's favorable countenance. And be gracious to you. That's what he's doing for us. Has not God been gracious to us? Do we not receive that blessing? His countenance upon us and gracious to us. And then the last one, his um, be gracious to you. His face shine upon you and he graces you and then lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So the countenance and the peace is the double blessing on the third, Lord bless you. Did you catch that? Three times, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. But each time it's you twice. So there's a subdivision each time for you. So go home and meditate upon these things. Consider these things. This is the blessing song that everyone's been singing since COVID began, right? This, is the, this song is very popular right now. Not the Pastor Chuck version. That's a different generation. New version, COVID generation. The blessing song. We've sung it a few times. This is his heart for us. And he says here, put my name on the children of Israel and I'll bless them. So this is the name of Jesus upon us. So Jesus says, when you ask in my name, you will have what you ask. And in asking in his name, we're asking in his character. This is his, our blessing God. So his name is upon us, and we ask in his name. This is who he is for us in whatever we face, individually, in our homes, in the church, worldwide, and in our country.